Welcome to another special edition of the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Eve Runyon, President and CEO of Pro Bono Institute, here with a two-episode edition podcast focused on DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was a program that was rescinded in September 2017, and how pro bono lawyers can help. Earlier this year, we hosted another special edition podcast that shared personal reflections and reactions from three pro bono leaders who have worked tirelessly with DACA recipients over the years. It was a compelling discussion, and we encourage you to revisit that conversation. Today, we bring you another thought-provoking discussion on DACA. We are joined by four experts who will highlight the history of the DACA program. Brad Phillips of Munger, Tolls, and Olson moderates the discussion with Jesse Gabriel of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, Judy London of Public Counsel, and Christina Yang of Asian Americans Advancing Justice Los Angeles. Because there is so much material to discuss, we are dividing this podcast into two episodes. We hope you enjoy part one of the conversation. Thank you for joining us. My name is Brad Phillips, and I'm a partner at Munger Tolls and Olson in Los Angeles, where I've done extensive pro bono work on immigration and other civil rights issues. I have the privilege of moderating what should be a very interesting and informative conversation about deferred action for childhood arrivals, commonly referred to as DACA, and its recent rescission by the Trump administration. DACA was adopted by the Obama administration in 2012. It provides to qualifying undocumented immigrants who entered the United States while they were children, almost always through no choice of their own, a two-year deferral of their removal from the United States. It excludes from eligibility, among others, those who are considered a danger to national security or public safety. In September of this year, the Trump administration announced that it will terminate DACA effective March 2018. That announcement has triggered a flurry of litigation and a dire need for pro bono attorneys to assist DACA recipients and applicants. Our panelists are exceptionally well qualified to address this situation. With me are Jesse Gabriel, an attorney in the Los Angeles office of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, and one of the lead pro bono lawyers in an important lawsuit challenging the Trump administration's actions concerning DACA. Judy London is the directing attorney of the Immigrants' Rights Project of Public Counsel, the Los Angeles nonprofit that is one of the nation's most important pro bono law firms. And Christina Yang is the pro bono director for Asian Americans Advancing Justice LA. We're going to talk about the legislative and political background of DACA, its benefits for immigrants and for society more generally, particularly in California, what is happening in the courts and Congress with respect to the Trump administration's rescission of DACA, and how pro bono lawyers can become involved. Before we begin that discussion, I'd like each of our panelists to provide a little more background concerning their careers and their experience with DACA. Jesse, maybe you could get us started. Thanks, Brad. I I think you covered it pretty well. I am a a civil litigator and public policy attorney at Gibson Dunn, and over the the past year have had the opportunity and and privilege to work on a number of cases related to DACA. Um, The two most significant are the major impact litigation we did for a young man named Daniel Ramirez Medina, who was one of the first, um, I I think the first um, DACA recipient who was 
detained by the government, by the Trump administration, and then placed into removal proceedings. And so we've been litigating his case over the past several months. And then more recently, we filed a complaint in Garcia versus United States of America, which is one of the lawsuits that's challenging the rescission of the DACA program. And we filed that lawsuit on behalf of six individual DACA recipients who have incredible stories and who organize their lives around the DACA program. And so that is some litigation that we're currently involved in in the Northern District of California, along with a number of other plaintiffs. Great. Thanks, Jesse. Judy, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Brad. So I'm Judy London, and as Brad said, I direct Public Council's Immigrant Rights Project. I'm probably the one person on the call that has been practicing immigration law before the laws were all rewritten in 1996. So in 1996 was was a moment where really the the whole area of immigration law was rewritten. Um, I spent much of the 90s at the Central American Resource Center um, and joined public council in 2002, and we have uh, a broad practice um, in removal defense, detention work, impact litigation, policy work, and have... um, been particularly active in the DACA arena. We were instrumental in the implementation of DACA um, and worked a lot on DACA issues and advocacy for really the next step, which would be some sort of legalization. Um, And now today are, uh, of course, joining forces with many of the people on this call to, to strategize and protect the DACA population moving forward. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Judy. Christina, maybe the same? Yes. Thanks, Brad. My name is Christina Yang, and as Brad mentioned, I'm the pro bono director at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Los Angeles. Um, At Advancing Justice LA, we focus on providing both direct legal services, um, including immigration and um, DACA-related services. Um, We also do impact litigation and um, policy advocacy and demographic research as well. Um, as pro bono director, I'm in charge of uh, coordinating and outreaching to both attorney and non-attorney volunteers with our organization. And over the years, that's certainly included um, DACA as an area where we've really been able to use a lot of pro bono attorneys' um, expertise and talents to help us serve uh, more clients. Um, and we serve not only uh, Asian and Pacific Islander communities, but also a sizable um Spanish-speaking population as well, and so DACA has certainly been a um, huge part of our organizational focus uh, since 2012. Great. Thanks, Christina. So we thought we'd start by giving some background on on DACA, uh, and I want to ask Judy, consistent with her longtime experience in immigration law, to kick that off with with a sort of historical background to it, and then I think Christina can jump in and talk about the DACA policy itself that was adopted in 2012 by the Obama administration and then taking us up through today and the recent rescission uh, of that policy by President Trump. So, Judy, can you take us forward? Sure. So the immigration issues that we're all talking about today um, really have their their start back in, in 1996, and they're were two major changes brought about in the 90s that, that in a real sense, created the the moment uh, that is now and the problems um, of really not just the DACA population, but over 11 million undocumented people who've made this country their home but have no way to legalize. So 
Just as a reminder of ancient history, we had President Clinton in 1996, um, and really late at night, uh, Lamar Smith, a Republican, rewrote the immigration laws, and people woke up the next day to a very different world uh, in terms of possible remedies for immigrants who did not have lawful status. And there are two changes I'm going to focus on. The first was the elimination of a remedy called suspension of deportation. And prior to 96, or it actually this change didn't take effect till April of 97, more or less any young person who had lived in this country for seven years continuously, had no significant criminal history, um, could establish the, the, this hardship requirement to show that deportation would cause extreme hardship. Um, at that time, more or less any high school graduate who walked into my office who had the seven years was going to leave an immigration court with a green card. So this remedy didn't work for people who had left less than seven years in the United States. It also didn't work for um, immigrants who had any sort of significant crimes. But for the vast majority of people who had essentially been raised in the United States, this would have been... Um, the primary mode of, of gaining lawful immigration status. So that was eliminated in its place. Congress signed into law a provision that created something now known as cancellation of removal. And the big change with that remedy from the suspension of deportation had to do with what we call a qualifying relative. The court under cancellation, cannot consider the hardship to the immigrant applying for this relief. The only hardship that counts is hardship to a U.S. citizen or permanent resident, parent, spouse, or child. So if you don't have a qualifying relative, and, and many DACA youth, for instance, would not, you cannot apply for this. Even if you do apply, the level of hardship that must be established to the qualifying relative is extraordinarily high, and it's... Um, it's very rare that, that applicants can meet that burden of proof. So what that means in terms of the today the folks we see as DACA recipients, by and large, have no eligibility for this relief, or if they have eligibility, it still would be very, very difficult to secure a green card through cancellation of removal. So perhaps an even bigger change had to do with um, obstacles put in the way of people trying to immigrate through family members. So historically, most immigrants are able to become permanent residents in this country because a close family member has the right under the law to petition for them. And this most typically happens when people marry. They may marry, uh, they may be abroad and marry a U.S. citizen, but many times they meet their spouse in the United States and they're here in some status or in no status and I'm going to simplify this because it's, it's quite complicated, but for people who had visa petitions filed on their behalf up till 2001, if they had entered the United States unlawfully, they had a way out. If they had an approved visa petition, they could adjust status. They could get their green card through a visa petition, even if they hadn't done things the right way under a section of law known as 245I. So if someone from Mexico entered unlawfully, went to high school here, married their high school sweetheart who was a U.S. citizen, they would they would get the green card if they were in Los Angeles, in downtown Los Angeles, after paying a fine. And it was a fairly quick 
process. It used to take a couple of months, maybe six months, um, and essentially all was forgiven. And um, someone acquired permanent residence through that family visa petition process, assuming, of course, that their records were clean and, and there were no other inadmissibility grounds. And this is a way that, that most immigrants were able to secure lawful permanent residency. The Illegal Immigrant Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, known by this awful acronym of IRA-IRA of 1996, created big problems to this system, and, and we're, we're seeing the results of that today. So today, if someone didn't have this petition filed by 2001, they can no longer get their green card in the United States. They have to do the what's referred to as consular processing. Instead of going down to an immigration office in this country, if they entered the United States unlawfully, they need to leave the country to get their green card. They need to go to the, the U.S. consulate in their home country. So if they're Mexican, they need to travel to Ciudad Juarez. And what IRA-IRA did is, is create very punitive bars. So the moment someone leaves the United States who's been in this country over a year without any lawful status, once they leave, they're barred from returning for 10 years. So if you think of the current DACA population of approximately 800,000, many of those individuals are married to U.S. citizens or will marry. But they're afraid to go home to their home countries to immigrate because they will trigger what's known as this 10-year unlawful presence bar. And even though that bar can be waived, that's a very complicated process. It also requires a hardship showing. So it's by no means a sure thing. So since, um, certainly since 2001, combined with the 1996 changes, this escape hatch was closed. And despite the fact that one married a U.S. citizen or had another approved family-based visa petition, um, that approval could never lead to permanent residency. And so you ended up with a, a higher and higher population of people who simply had no immigration remedies. Um, as the years ticked by, ad, the public became increasingly aware of these stories of people who had spent their most of their lives here, but had, you know, they were in medical school, they were in business school, they were small business owners, they were high school students, but there was nothing in the law that allowed them to legalize. And really it was the dreamers, or who we think of as the dreamers, that carried the advocacy to where we're at today. And just this whole population of undocumented youth in particular refused um, to, to be invisible and came forward and started demanding change. And really the height of these efforts to secure a pathway to U.S. citizenship came in 2007 where Congress became very, very close to enacting legal reform, which would have created this path to citizenship. Um, and the same sort of anti-immigrant sentiments that had begun in California in the early 1990s really took over the climate in Washington, D.C., and narrowly these efforts were defeated. And to this day, efforts have been um Efforts to legislate and, and come up with some humanitarian, sensible immigration reform have failed. And it was really as a result of those failures that President Obama um, began to think about what other measures could be done through the executive branch to protect this population while the advocacy marches forward. And I guess I'll stop there and let Christina talk a little bit about what 
what then came to be. Sure. Um, Judy, I don't know if you wanted to touch a bit on the origins of, of deferred action, just to, to give people a bit more framework um, as to the sort of not super out of the norm in terms of um, what Obama did in terms of deferred action. Sure, and others should feel free to jump in. But deferred action has been around for decades as a mechanism that the Department of Homeland Security, formerly INS, has used. Essentially, um, it refers to discretion all prosecutorial agencies have in regard to how to use their resources. And so faced with hard choices of about policy, um, at various times in our nation's history, the, the immigration authorities have essentially decided to create a protective program known as deferred action, essentially a decision not to deport an individual or a group of individuals for compelling humanitarian reasons. And those reasons have varied, um, you know, over the years, uh, a, a sort of deferred action has been given to domestic violence victims who apply for something called a U-Visa. And because it can take a long period of time to have those U-Visas adjudicated, our government decided as a policy they should not be deporting people through that process. And so if they have what's known as prima facie eligibility for a U-Visa, um, which essentially means that the U-Visa applicant has been a victim of a violent crime and has cooperated with law enforcement, uh, a U visa applicant with this prima facie showing is given deferred action. In other words, Homeland Security is not going to move to enforce against that person and protect them from removal. Um, this has been used for uh, Salvadorans and Guatemalans during the 1980s, during the civil wars, um, and in connection with litigation um, protecting the rights of Salvadorans and Guatemalans to asylum. Uh, there are many, many examples historically of deferred action used by both the Republicans when the Republicans have been in office and by Democrats. And there was really nothing controversial about it um, until it became um, the present environment involving DACA. Great. Um, thanks, Judy, for that background. Um, I just thought that was important for folks to know because I think um, for most folks, um, they didn't really become aware of deferred action as a mechanism, I think, until um, the Obama executive order came down in the in the DACA context. So I think it's definitely important to highlight that it was something that's been going on um, uh, for, for decades, and it's a tool that's been used by both sides, as it were. Um, but as Judy mentioned, um, so... Um, Obama essentially, um, you know, he grew tired of waiting for Congress to act. And in fact, the um, what we now call the DREAM Act, which stands for Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, that had actually first been introduced way back in 2001. So we're looking at, you know, um, 10 to 11 years had passed until uh, June of 2012 when um, Obama opted to act by executive order. Um, and DACA was, in fact, created through executive action, and it did instruct um, government agencies and officers who oversee immigration proceedings to go ahead and defer taking action against, um, you know, certain minor persons who had entered the U.S. Um, when they were, you know, young enough to not actually be a part of that decision-making process. Perhaps it was their parent, um, a grandparent, or some other adult responsible for them. Um, who brought them into the U.S. Um, 
And just to provide some quick background on DACA itself, um, it is um, a, a program, I think it's important to highlight that, um, was really only um, providing benefits to a fairly limited class of folks. Um, I think depending on who you talk to, um, DACA might be painted as sort of, you know, um, allowing a, you know, flood of, of individuals to, to stay here in the U.S. who um, perhaps have not um, gone through the, quote, proper procedures. Um, but in fact, um, and this is from my own personal experience, um, having um, worked closely with our immigration staff and um, working on DACA clinics over the years, it's really actually quite difficult um, to apply for, for the DACA benefits. You have to have all of your documentation lined up. Um, you have to prove um, continuous residence over a fairly significant period of time. You have to meet um, the age requirements of being under the age of 31 um, as of June 15, 2012, when you applied. Um, and there's various requirements about being physically present as well um, to, to actually be considered. Um, and there are also various um, uh, bars uh, regarding um, um, past uh, criminal convictions, significant misdemeanors, um, other things like that that, in fact, um, do, do make it rather stringent um, to actually qualify for the DACA benefits. Um, and then to just fast forward um, quickly to 2014, um, this was when uh, President Obama sought to actually expand um, the, the DACA program and start the um, DAPA program, um, which at the time the hope was to also provide benefits to um, the parents um, of the DACA recipients. Um, and this was also an executive action that was undertaken in 2014. Um, unfortunately, this was um, quickly thereafter challenged by a number of, of different states. Um, and uh, thereafter, this was um, there was um, an injunction issued by the Fifth Circuit in early 2015 that prevented the expanded program from going to an effect. And the Supreme Court did end up taking up the issue um, in June of 2016, um, but um, they were deadlocked, and that left in place the Fifth Circuit's injunction. Um, and I believe later on, um, Brad will be able to touch a bit more on his um, and his firm's involvement um, in some of the litigation around the expansion. Um, and again, to fast forward us again uh, to just a few months ago, to September of 2017, um, when President Trump announced that the DACA program would, in fact, be terminated as of March of 2018. And this was something I think that many uh, nonprofits and immigrant rights advocates had um, foreseen that this day would come, um, but I think everyone was hoping that it wouldn't. Um, and what, what, this, what this announcement effectively meant was that the program, um, as of that day of the announcement, which is September 5th, um, that no further DACA applications would be taken, and there was a very quick deadline of about 30, 35 days um, for folks to get their renewals in if they were eligible to renew and extend their uh, DACA benefits. Um, I believe it's for up to about two years. Um, and so there was, um, at our agency, and I believe public council and others, um, quite a scramble to get the word out to community members to gather up their documents and get everything ready to make sure that they um, got their application um, submitted in time, um, along with the fee, um, which was a hefty $495. Um, and so that takes us to where we are today in uh, November 2017. 
Great. Um, thanks, Judy, and thank you, Christina. Uh, we wanted to touch um, briefly just on the particular significance of DACA for California, where we are. Um, and I guess I would just say, say this, that although this isn't necessarily, these are people who are obviously not all um, DACA recipients, California does have the largest population of undocumented immigrants of any state in the country, some estimates of as much as uh, a quarter of all the undocumented immigrants in the country are in California and that they may um, make up as much as 7% of, of California's population. Um, and uh, so it's of particular significance to California. Uh, and there are some issues that maybe one of you could touch on that are legal issues that are actually unique to uh, DACA recipients in California. One of you able to address that? Well, I can take a stab. I mean, I think your point is an important point, just how much of the population I've heard the estimate is, is about is closer to one-third of the DACA population. And, of course, here in Southern California, um, we have most of that, that population. Um, there have been important legislative victories in the state of California that have had a big impact um, on anyone undocumented in California. So this term, the DREAM Act, is, is thrown around a lot, but, but for the state of California, the DREAM Act um, really referred uh, to the ability of undocumented students in the state of California to access our universities um, through something known as AB 540. Um, essentially, their residence here um, enabled them to pay the tuition that a resident of California would pay and open the door to higher education for so many. Um, another change we've had in California is the ability of someone who's undocumented to receive um, a driver's license. Um, but specific to DACA, there have been just expanded access to health care. Um, the primary issue in California um, is employment. So although many DACA recipients are in school, uh, the vast majority are working full-time or working part-time or full-time and going to school. So this essentially um, has had far-reaching implications, economic for all Californians, um, but also lifting up um, individual DACA recipients, lifting their families out of poverty, enabling them to pursue careers, pursue higher education, um, address mental health issues that came from the, the constant fear of deportation. So the, um, the effects are, are magnified here because of the numbers that we have. You know, let me just thank, thanks. Let this Brad um, again. Let me let me just add and jump ahead a little bit because it relates to some work I did on the lawsuits that were brought um, after the expansion of DACA by the Obama administration, trying to stop that expansion of DACA. Um, but among other things, I filed uh, we filed my firm filed an amicus brief on behalf of a pretty broad coalition of uh, Californians, prominent Californians, business people educational officials, including the president and chancellors of the University of California, law enforcement officials, and, and health um, health workers, uh, explaining the ways in which DACA benefits California's economy uh, and its civic life and families and, and law enforcement generally and public safety by 
essentially bringing this very large, significant portion of the population what out of the shadows, in a sense, in, in, where they were felt obliged to, to live outside the educational and public safety and health uh, institutions that we all take for granted, they avoided uh, because of fear about their immigration status. And giving them deferred action uh, under DACA allowed them to participate more fully, and, and that was a huge boon for California's economy and for families in California and civic groups in California, uh, and very importantly for public safety because uh, the police and so on found that, that people who were, had deferred action were much more willing to come forward and help with report and help with the investigation of, of crime in, in California. So it's a pretty um, uh, compelling group of people talking about the importance of this um, for not just for the, uh, the recipients of DACA, but for the people of California more generally. Hey, Brad, this is Jesse. I just wanted to jump in on that. I, I think it's a really important point, and I think it you know goes back to the excellent overview that, that Judy and Christina gave of, of the DACA program. That is something that folks in the federal government recognized with deferred action and recognized with DACA. So, you know, part of this program is, is not just about helping these deserving young people who've spent their lives in our country and consider themselves Americans, but it's really about the benefits to the government. And the government got a lot of benefits out of the establishment of DACA, law enforcement benefits, administrative benefits, economic benefits. And so I think that's something that's important to keep in mind when we talk about the history of deferred action and the history of DACA is that there are a lot of benefits to the government from creating this program. Absolutely, and to everyone else, really, in, in, in the country and, and in, in California in particular. And just one quick anecdote, when I, one of the first cases I ever did was a case in Los Angeles County where the county had decided to stop providing um, free health care to undocumented immigrants. Um, and I was involved in a lawsuit challenging that, and our main argument was not so much the, the dangers to the undocumented immigrants, although that was part of it, but the bigger argument, and we had uh, testimony from every public health official in, in Southern California, was the sort of extraordinary danger to the rest of the population if you didn't provide health care to people who were cleaning your houses and washing dishes in restaurants and and, you know, cleaning your yards and so on. And, and that was really what turned the court in our favor then. And it's, I think, really analogous here to the sort of extraordinary benefits from DACA for everyone and the, the dangers, frankly, of putting these people back in the shadows again. I'd like to thank Brad, Jesse, Judy, and Christina for taking time to share their knowledge and insights into the DACA program with us in part one of this special edition episode. Tune in next week for part two of the conversation in which our panelists will discuss how pro bono lawyers can get involved. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. We would love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at provodoinst.org. Thank you for listening, and tune in next time for part two of our most recent discussion about the DACA program on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.